the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and welcome. Good to have you with us for this Tuesday, the ninth day of January. And, uh, boy, as much as we were sort of enjoying the lingering feeling of the holidays, certainly late last week, you know, less traffic. Now it's kind of getting back to a greater degree of normalcy, not only in terms of people back from vacation, back from holiday, back to school, back to work. And with it, the list includes the California state legislature. And that's the bad news, of course, because whenever the California state legislature is in town and is working, that means they are generally working against Californians. Let's get an update right now on a very troubling new bill, Senate Bill 320, that essentially seeks to put our universities into the abortion business. What? Brad Dacus joins us, constitutional lawyer, the founder and president of the Pacific Justice Institute. And I guess most people would do a double take as I did Counselor, and thank you for being with us tonight, to read that the legislature is trying to pass Senate Bill 320. Now, this is a bill that we had talked about lightly late last year. Looks like there's a new version now being promoted in the Senate Health Committee that essentially puts higher education into the medical business and more specifically into the abortion business. What's going on? Yeah, um, this is... uh very uh, concerning for many people when they hear about this. Uh, this uh, legislation, this bill, uh, SB 320, uh, would uh, require on all California uh, university campuses, all California state universities and University of California uh, campuses that have uh, health, health uh, clinics, and um, they, I, I believe they all do, uh, to make available abortion via medication uh, to their students. In fact, they have to make this available at least three days a week. Um, you know, uh, and it's and it's uh, very very con- concerning. Um, and uh, they also, uh, if they don't provide it, then they have to uh, make arrangements with a qualified family planning provider uh, in the alternative. So it's, they they are really committed to promoting abortions um, and killing of the unborn on our university campuses. And what's really sad about this, also, Craig, is that. Looking through the language, I see nowhere a requirement to provide them uh, alternative counseling to abortion, uh, or looking at or any other kind of assistance for other alternatives. No, it's it's abortion that they're pushing, and they're pushing it very heavily through this bill. And, and clearly, there's part of the the grander agenda at play here, because well, otherwise, how would this make any sense? I mean, we're basically saying, okay, we're going to watch institutes of higher learning dive deeper into health care services. I suppose the next thing is I'll walk into my doctor's office next week and find a lecture hall in a lending library. I mean, why do they feel compelled, other than having a standard school nurse available if some student takes ill, why are they even trying to get into the health care business, let alone the abortion business? 
Yeah, you know, their thinking and their, their rationale is uh, based on the, the idea that, well, these young people, um, you know, they, they need these services and they're on campus and uh, we just want to make it easy for them to get, you know, to, you know, they, they, they rationalize it, but the real bottom line is, you know, we know Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry, you know, um, you know, very favorable towards towards this kind of legislation, and uh, and their goal and desire is to uh, push the pro-abortion uh, agenda. And um, and the sad thing is that there's so many young people. You know, more than 400,000 students are classified as female, um, educated at California uh, California's public university campuses. And um, you know, there's a, a lot of girl, young young women who are going to be scared in, in very unfortunate situations. And uh, they're going to need more than just someone giving them a quick pill to solve their allegedly solve their problems. Um, they're going to need really uh, truly compassionate support through uh, pro-life clinics uh, that are uh, serving uh, uh, the majority of these campuses in different ways. Well, what's also interesting about this, I can't help but think that there is a degree to which this is their attempt at kind of slipping the camel's nose underneath the tent and hoping nobody is going to notice. I mean, to begin with, the notion of providing a chemically induced or or medically uh, medicine-based abortifacient is not something that involves zero risk. In fact, um, there are some pretty severe processes that happen to the baby, obviously to not only take the baby's life, but then expel it from the mother's body, uh, essentially forcing a a premature miscarriage here. Well, none of that is a walk in the park. Hey, take an aspirin, you'll feel better inside of two hours. So not only is it serious to that degree, this bill completely ignores the seriousness of this. And I would suspect, to my comment about the Campbell's nose underneath the tent approach here, that how long would it be? Assuming that this disastrous piece of legislature gets voted upon and signed into law by Governor Brown, and you know that certainly would happen, how long will it be before somebody comes along and argues, well, this bill, this measure is discriminatory because it discriminates against women that are later on, what if they don't discover they're pe- pregnant until later on or decide, you know, into the second trimester that they don't want to carry the child to term because it'll interfere with their school studies. And so now they've decided they want to have access to full-on abortions, but the clinics inside of the, the universities only provide abortifacients. And so therefore, we have to expand the services being provided. I mean, I, I don't know about you, Counselor, but I see it heading in that direction really quickly if this were to pass. Oh, yes. And uh, it's it is a I think that, you know you, it's a good analogy you know the, the camel uh, you know looking under uh, you know uh, under the tent and 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 and, uh, and, and being involved in in, uh, in in an area that really this, the state has no business using taxpayer dollars uh, to uh, to fund uh, the uh, the abortions of of uh, who knows how many of unborn babies and and of course the impact on these these. Uh, young ladies as well. You know, the legislation says it's, it's uh, you know, it's quote, it's safe, um, you know, uh, low cost, and and uh, you know, just, they just make it seem like it's just a quick little easy solution, and it's really not. The mental, emotional impact, uh, even if in some cases the the uh, physical impact, uh, and uh, is is not uh, should not be ignored. So when they say it's you know it's extremely safe, highly effective, cost effective, um, it's just a, once again a part of the big deception and. And the idea of taxpayers uh, paying for this to be taking place uh, on an ongoing basis at every state university in, in California um, should have everyone concerned. And, uh, 
uh, and uh, when they uh, write their 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 check of, to pay for their t- their their taxes every year to the state of California. Well, and we moved from uh, educating to now running abortion clinics at uh, university campuses across the state, and it's ironic that you know this whole business of education has become a bit of a racket in this country. Student loan business is a multi-billion dollar industry, and most ironically, those that benefit the most from it is Washington, D.C., who receives the uh, the lion's share of interest that's paid on these student loans that can run in the tens of thousands to, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So our education is not only deteriorating, it is, it is out of orbit high-priced, and then we're going to add to this somehow. We're going to manage to find more tax dollars so that we can not only educate them, but then when we don't educate them sufficiently enough on the way the birds and the bees work, that's okay. We'll have an abortion clinic on campus, also taxpayer-funded, available to you. I mean, it it, it just... You you have to ask yourself after a while, and and forgive me for venting here, Counselor, but after a while you have to ask yourself, is there ever any end to this insanity? Does anybody in Sacramento stand up and say, hey, now wait a minute? But apparently not. No, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, Those opposed to it are are definitely outnumbered. And and for people to understand how imminent this is, if this becomes law, uh, this bill would go into effect July 1st of 2018, of this year. So, I mean, they're assuming, I mean, sometimes the legislation doesn't become law until September. They're assuming that it's going to be passed and in uh, in effect July 1st, 2008. I mean, that's the, the language that is actually in here. This bill would, would require that on or after July 1st, 2018, each each campus uh, of the California State University system that does not already have it, you know, to, to move forward and have it. Um, so it's it's uh, basically making it so that as soon as this becomes law, it will immediately go into effect, and that's very concerning. God ever judges this state. We won't have to worry about splitting off from the rest of the Union. He'll probably split the thing off and sink it in the Pacific Ocean. Um, there was a hearing on this very topic of Senate Bill 320 tomorrow, and for people of good mind and good conscience, how should we be reacting? Is it time to contact our state um, legislature, contact members of the Senate Education Committee on this? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I think that's it's, it's something that uh, should definitely be done. Uh, we shouldn't assume that every legislator is just lockstep, lock you know, committed to this, you know, this agenda, um, on, at least on the left side of the aisle. So I think it's it's important to matter whether it's a Republican or Democrat to contact them and let them know uh, your opinion on this, let you know your, your opposition to it, and um, and you know and and, and just you know your uh, your concern that of, of taxpayer dollars being used. We have so much, uh, so many other things in, in areas of need in our state that our taxpayer dollars should not be used uh, to make abortion easy uh, right there on our taxpayer-funded university campuses. And they'll they'll just, you know, they'll increase in tuition fees. They'll certainly turn around and increase taxes in California to help pay for it. I mean, what is the latest rumblings now? They want to figure out how we can declare part of our taxes, not taxes, but donations, so we can write them off because we're not going to qualify for the full-on deduction as we used to enjoy here in California. And, you know, while yes, in part, the responsibility of the the tax bill that was just passed and signed into law needs to be laid at the feet of those who agreed to the bill and signed the bill. At the end of the day, you know who really created the problem? 
of entirely too high taxes in California? Well, that's right. It would be the California state legislature. They're really the ones to blame. I, I, I tell you, Craig, I, I know of people who are planning on getting their house, buying a house in Nevada, and living there 51% of the year um, because the tax burden is, just, is, is so high. And then when we have issues like this, where we see how, where, how they're using their tax dollars or wanting to use our tax dollars to fund things that many of us find just unconscionable, um, I think it's, a, it's definitely a bad move. It's not morally, it's a bad move fiscally in the long run. Well, and, and, and undoubtedly on, on both accounts. Now, let me urge you, there's going to be a committee hearing on this very topic of Senate Bill 320 tomorrow. You can contact Senator Benjamin Allen, who is the chairman of the Senate Education Committee, at 916-651-4026. Also, there's a couple of committee members that are are potentially vulnerable here, may may potentially be open to hearing from the sane side. Uh, That would include Senator Kathleen Galgiani of Stockton at 916-651-4005. That's 916-651-4005. And Senator Andy Vidak of Fresno at 916-651-4014. 916-651-4014. Now, I realize you're driving and at a tremendous disadvantage to try and jot those numbers down. So um, we'll repeat them again in the next 10 minutes. And also, if you if you don't catch it, can't catch it, your commute's too long to be able to write the numbers down, uh, you can certainly Google the Senate Education Committee and get their contact names and telephone numbers that way. And just urge them to please vote no on Senate Bill 320. I'll also remind you that the podcast will be up later on this evening that you can share and link to at kfax.com. If you go to the podcast page for Lifeline under today's date, you can get a copy of today's show and uh, share that with others so that we can get as many people responding to this. And again, I apologize for the lateness of the notice, but we just found out about this literally today. And here we are on the air telling you about it tonight. Senate Bill 320 would create basically little mini-abortion centers in universities, state-level universities and colleges across the great state of California. We'll pay for it with taxpayer dollars, and the minute it gets in, somebody will say, oh, you just can't do your abortifacients. That's not fair to women that are further along in their unplanned pregnancy. You need to provide full-on abortion clinics. That'll come, and you'll pay for it. It's the world in which we live. Wish I knew. Well, sin, there's one answer for you. 519. Let's uh, digress into something more pleasant for the moment. Traffic? (laughs) Traffic more pleasant? Boy, there's a desperate segue if I ever heard one. Let's see what's going on out there. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Jarrell, when you get a chance, can you come in here and sweep all, all this confetti that Dick Mosaleski left behind? Huge mess here in the studio. <laughs> Welcome back to the program, 524. This is, of course, a Sanctity of Life Month here in January when we sadly and with great 
sense of remorse marked the anniversary of the passage of the historic 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which made abortion legal in America, a scourge on our nation to be sure ever since. What are the numbers? 55 million, something like that? I mean, it's exceeded by the California state population plus a good 25, 30 percent or more in the ensuing 44, 45 years. And uh, it's a big black eye, to be sure. And uh, not one, as you heard from our conversation with Brad Dacus a moment ago, that we're going to apparently go about face-on anytime soon. Now, that said, the reality is, and maybe this helps us better understand some of the mentality behind this push towards things like creating abortion clinics now in universities and college campuses across the state. And that is because the abortion side knows that they are losing, that fewer and fewer abortions are taking place, that more and more people are beginning to realize that it's not just a clump of tissue, but it's actually a baby. And as a result, they are on an increasing basis choosing life. And if you take a look at the abortion rate and its decline in America against the resurgence of population as a per capita percentage, you can see that we're making some pretty serious headway. And as a result, the people that make a living off of abortions are getting nervous. They want this to be as accessible as possible. They want it to be as commonplace as going to the dentist to get your teeth cleaned so that it seems to be easy, respectable, and therefore an industry that will continue to provide cash results for its purveyors. All right, from... Senate Bill 320, there are some other measures that we need to be aware of as the California legislature gets back to work, back in session. And with some more insights, we are joined by Brian Johnston, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. And uh, Brian, it's always great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's always great to be on your show because you always dig for the truth and want it exposed so that people can act on it. Nice, Brian, when they're all on vacation over the holidays, we get a little bit of a rest, but sure as can be, the minute we get back from the Christmas vacation, the California state legislature gets back to work. They get back to largely working against the people of California. And uh, we're now uh, into the brand new legislative session as of uh, just a week ago. So tell us what's going on and what do we need to be aware of? Well, you're right. California is a unique state of the nation. I think everybody knows that in some way. We're unique. We have one of the few full-time legislatures. They have to say that these legislators are paid very handsomely to make laws. Most other states are citizen legislatures. They meet briefly. The legislators have their own jobs. They're normal people, and yet they're elected to represent their their fellow citizens for certain times of the year to make those laws. California, it's full-time, it's all the time, and then they have full-time staff. It's a, it's a billion-dollar business. The problem with it is we are set up in California with two-year sessions. That means they started last year, and they had a partial wrap-up of all those bills last year. We talked about some of them. We halted many bills. And one, in fact, was SB 320. That was kind of stopped. But when they come back to the second half of the session, they can resurrect 
bills, even the ones that seem to be defeated. So unlike any other state in the nation, when the bad guys, you, you might say, when they are controlling the reins of authority, they can do what they want. So SB 320, which as you correctly pointed out, and Brad, these, this is a chemical abortifacient. It's not the morning after pill. This will then be distributed on every college campus in the state university and college system. Uh, and again, it alters the woman's body. And this young mother, because she's a young mother, it tells her, hey, don't be a young mother anymore. Don't give any nutrition to that child in the womb. That's how it kills. It, it kills the child because it dramatically changes the young mother's body chemistry. And it can be harmful, very harmful to the mother. But then these, these young women are going to go and give spontaneous abortion in some toilet somewhere. So this is not the morning after pill. This is incredibly insidious. That's just one measure, and again, that's in Senate Education Committee tomorrow. But there's other bills that we were fighting last year that could come back. One we did stop and we celebrated last year, Craig, and it was really the listeners of this station that helped stop it. That was the pro-abortion, the pro-choice license plate bill. They can actually bring that back in a two-year cycle, and they can resurrect it if they so choose. Is that bizarre? Another very scary one, which we halted last year, it's very ominous for those of us concerned with end-of-life care and defending those when you're most vulnerable. You know, we're most vulnerable when we're babies, and then we become very vulnerable again when you're a senior citizen as your powers are fading. And it's responsibility of society and families to protect those individuals. Well, we're not protecting babies right now, and sadly, we're not protecting the elderly. And that bill, SB 481, would allow nursing homes to dehydrate whatever patients they wanted to and to do so without culpability. Unless it's amended, that's still there and it can be resurrected. There's many others we would, because here's the problem in California politics. You don't know what they're going to do until they decide to do it. And in a two-year session, they literally can say, hey, let's pull this one up and jam it through. That's why, and you've been very good, Craig, uh, and the KFAC listeners, sometimes out of the blue, they will throw extraordinarily strange bills through there, and we've got to respond. I, I do want to take a second, though, and agree with you about California and what we're seeing culturally. Everyone saw what's happening now in Hollywood, and an important thing to recognize with Harvey Weinstein, understand that Harvey Weinstein is the number one financier in the whole Hollywood industry of Planned Parenthood and the abortion lobby. Personally, he gives millions of dollars from the Hollywood funds, those funds that he's gathered. And it's very clear why. Because he uses women. It's very clear. Abortion uses women, and abortion, to be perfectly honest, it gets guys off the hook. That's its purpose is so that the guy doesn't have to be an accountable father. It is one of the most reprehensible acts that we have seen as a nation, fathers and mothers that are then convinced to kill their babies. So we're seeing even Hollywood has begun to be creeped out. Even Hollywood is creeped out by Harvey Weinstein. That's great news. Think about it. This is great news very important. I know a lot of it is because of prayer. A lot of it is because people have decided to speak up 
and move forward. So I really want to encourage listeners that as as wacky as California can seem at times, there is something happening. So continue to learn, continue to speak up, to be involved. It's an election year. That's exciting. It really is because a lot of elections happen for school boards, for county supervisors. So don't just look at the 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 big races. You need to ask someone running for supervisor, are you going to give county money to Planned Parenthood? We'll show you how to do that, by the way. There's forms that you can just ask them. School board, will you release kids for abortions? School boards are the ones that make that decision. Those are your school boards. Those are my school boards. When you get involved, you can change California. And I want to urge folks uh, to do just that, to be actively involved in this process. Your voice needs to be heard. It's not just enough that you vote at every election cycle. It is, quite frankly, not enough that you pray. As, whoa, before you (laughs) hit the brakes and nearly bump your head on the rearview mirror, let me qualify that. It is first and foremost preeminently important that you pray. But we're called to be both salt and light of the earth. And part of that process involves us taking an active role in this business of self-governance. And I know that a lot of people like to easily skirt their responsibility by saying, well, politics, it's dirty. It's not a place for Christians to be. After all, look at all the terrible things that happen, and we should be set apart. Well, that is true, with one caveat. If we were living in a kingdom that somebody else ran, probably wouldn't have any choice but to pray for the king. In this case, we are the king. We are the kingmakers. We govern ourselves. This is, as so wonderfully articulated by President Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, government of, by, and for the people. So if you're failing to pray, failing to be involved, failing to vote, you're going to wind up getting a failed government. You're going to wind up getting the kind of government that you deserve. So being educated is one thing. Being prayerfully minded about these matters is another. And then engaging the process of self-governments. That's the third prong to this. And so contacting, as we say, members of the California State Senate Education Committee on SB 320, and doing it tomorrow morning, critically important. I promised I'd share those numbers again. Let me do it now. Let me thank Brian Johnston for being with us tonight, Western Regional Director with the National Right to Life Committee. Telephone numbers to contact in relationship to Senate Bill 320 that will be heard in the Senate Education Committee tomorrow. Chairman Benjamin Allen at 916-651-4026. That's 916-651-4026. And then um, there's a total of seven members, but there's a couple here that I think may potentially be vulnerable uh, to to persuasion. One is Senator Kathleen Galgiani of Stockton, and she can be reached at 916-651-4005. That's 916-651-4005. And finally, Senator Andy Vidak of Fresno at 916-651-4014. 916-651-4014. 534. Let me uh, 
Get out of the way here for a moment, get you caught up in some traffic. We'll do that right now. Michael Bennett's got the latest in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Good afternoon. I'm not so great. Things are not so fine. I'm hurting. Not an answer that most of us are programmed to give. Not only are we resident, resident rather, to um, be that honest and candid with each other, but even when it comes to our relationship with God, more often than not, we just fake fine. My guest tonight suggests that it's time to quit that, that we should uh, no more engage in faking fine. In fact, no more faking fine is the title of her new book, newly released by Zondervan. We're pleased to have Esther Fleece join us on the program. And uh, Esther, I, I, I think I can say for the moment, with complete honesty, uh, good morning. I am fine. How are you? <laughs> I am so glad to hear that, Craig. You know what? I'm doing well today as well, as well, and I appreciate you having me on your program. Great to have you with us. And wouldn't it be refreshing, not only refreshing, but perhaps life-changing, if we could be a little bit better in touch with the realities of life and the times when we have to honestly say, you know what, I'm not so fine. In fact, I'm really hurting today and I'm in a lot of pain. Not only do we do a good job oftentimes trying to hide that from very God himself, but we, generally speaking, have become masters at this when it comes to faking fine in front of others. Why so? You know, I think that, um, gosh, social media sure doesn't help nowadays. You know, you kind of put your best foot forward, and that's even online. So there's just, you have to be Pinterest perfect, and, um, you know, it depends on how many likes you have for how your day is going. And I don't know how this has happened, but I, I feel that we are just putting our best foot forward, and we are forgetting that there is a, a beauty um, in transparency and that people connect to us when they hear our brokenness, that it's actually an invitation for friendship. When boasting and being fine really shuts down relationships from happening. And of course, the irony is not only does it shut down our interpersonal relationships to the greatest degree on the horizontal plane and the capacity to be able to, what well, scripture exhorts us, to bear ye one another's burdens. In fact, it goes further than that. It says, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Not only do we violate that, but also this matter of faking fine also tends to impact our relationship with God pretty significantly too, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I thought when people just wanted my best foot, then certainly God probably wants that too. He, he wants to hear about what I'm thankful for. He wants me to rejoice always. He wants me to never be anxious. And I was missing all of the invitations in Scripture to come. You know, he says, come if you are weary. Come if you're burdened. I will give you rest. There's all these invitations throughout Scripture that we, he knows we are going to be weary. He knows that we are going to be in pain, that we are going to be frustrated and I feel that we're at the end of our rope sometimes, and he invites us to come. He never silences a lamenting prayer. And sadly, that sort of turning away from the ability to pray the lamenting prayer, to to pull the mask down, so to speak, and be um, who we are in our pain and with our burdens, not only in front of each other, but in front of God, is not just something that we make up on our own, but in fact, in many cases, it's something that's sort of a trained response. You, you talk about it inside of your new, new book, No More faking fine, that as a young girl at the age of 10, you were um, not only readily encouraged to fake fine, but you were told upright and in a stern voice by no less authority than a family court judge to, well, his term wasn't fake fine, his term was suck it up. But at the end mm -hmm. of the day, it had the same result, didn't it? 
Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of us, when we think back to um, childhood years, we think of how we were taught to deal with grief and pain and heartache. And some of us might have been taught um, good tools, but many of us were told to suck it up. Or maybe we've even heard things like, boys don't cry, or girls are too emotional. And uh, unfortunately, we've um, put prescriptions on how to deal with grief that are not how God describes to deal with grief. Uh, You know, Jesus was described as a man of sorrows, and Jesus himself led us into his weeping. Uh, He didn't suck it up. He didn't pray it away. So um, I was. I was told by a courtroom judge. I was testifying in a a felony case, actually, that involved my biological parents. And uh, my father's lawyer pulled out my diary and began to read my diary in front of the whole courtroom. I was just mortified. I felt so ashamed. I didn't know what to do. I was overcome with grief. And in that moment, the judge told me to suck it up. And he said I needed to keep going. And uh, truth be told, I lived that way for more than 20 years. And um, because of God's great love, um, he allowed more afflictions, more suffering, more pain throughout my life to where sucking it up no longer worked. I became very weary, and I thought there has to be a new way. There has to be a new way to pray. There has to be something that I can do with this grief that's inside of me. And sucking it up no longer worked. During that time, though, that it was not only a mandate, um, but a coping mechanism in in a sense. And again, it's not just the culpability of that judge with that very inappropriate directive, but quite frankly, a lot of what we are mandated to do throughout society. Oh, nobody likes to see a frown face. Turn that frown right side up. You know, we hear all of those platitudes. And at the end of the day, it, it, it really robs us of the ability to be able to be vulnerable enough, particularly before God, to, to to not only express where we're at and how we're feeling, but most importantly, to receive any kind of healing. That, that, that sense of just kind of pretending our way through life really robs us of the ability, robs us of the ability to, to define wholesomeness, doesn't it? Oh, it absolutely does. And, you know, I didn't want to bother God with my cries, especially, you know, I, I was abandoned. I didn't have a mother and father that were involved that wanted to hear about my bad day at school. Uh, So I just didn't want to bother God. And then I would read Scripture, and I'd hear about, you know, these stiff-necked people and these people that were ungrateful, and I just never wanted to be that before God. But I didn't understand at the time that there's a difference between a lamenter and a complainer. Mm. A lamenter takes their emotion, takes their bad day, takes their grief and their disappointment, and goes to God in a form of prayer and says, God, this is too much. I can't handle this. I need you. Where are you? Why is this happening? Those are authentic prayers that God wants to meet somebody. He wants to offer comfort to them. He wants to give them his peace. A complainer is vastly different. A complainer grumbles against God. A complainer complains to God about, you know, about God to other people. Like, I don't like God's timing, and he's this, and he's that. So there's a big difference between a lamenter and a complainer. And I want to say to your listeners that God does want our laments. He wants to hear them. Yeah, certainly um, he's given us examples in Scripture of how that process looks. I think of people like Job, who had a little bit of complainer in him, but there was also a lot of lamenting that went on there. And, and I guess we also have to be cautious here in reminding people that we sometimes confuse, we get this, this um, misconception about Christianity, that somehow uh, in Christianity there's a guarantee that life will be happy and pain-free and we're going get to get out of uh, jail or get out of suffering card. But in fact, it, it was, Scripture doesn't tell us, us that anywhere, does it? It doesn't. It actually tells us that um, in this world we will have many troubles. 
um, and it says that the world is going to hate us. And it's not to, um, you know, read those things, and they're not to be dismissed, and they're not to be despaired either. We're not to be in despair, but we are to be prepared when the suffering comes, when the trials come. And as the suffering continued in my life, I, I just was like, what am I doing wrong in my faith? Am I not praying enough? Am I not reading the Scripture enough? And I realized I was placing a wrong theology, almost a karma theology on God. And that God was kind enough to warn me that trials and tribulations were going to come and that I needed to endure. I needed to be steadfast. And so I would just love to see believers, instead of blaming God when trials come, shifting our blame and turning into lament, and to authentically pray, God, this hurts that this is happening. I am having a hard time dealing with cancer. Please heal me. I mean, that is an authentic prayer. But I think God wants to be stopped. He, he wants us to stop gossiping about him and stop blaming him for the evils of the world. He laments evil, too. He grieves himself. The Holy Spirit grieves. All of creation is groaning. And so um, I just think it's a language that God himself speaks. So, of course, he doesn't despise it. How kind that he would teach us how to pray. Well, moreover, to be able to experience the totality of God's grace in the midst of our brokenness mm-hmm. by being yeah. able to be candid that way with others and with God is something that I think as we're, as we're you know, uh, pretending and putting on the happy face, there's another song we could have used, Jarrell, uh, we, we, we miss out on the opportunity to experience the totality of God's grace in that brokenness. I, I was sharing with a colleague today, uh, I recall a year ago, just this past October, I was diagnosed with cancer. And a friend asked me about the experience. Well, gee, when you, when you got the word from the doctors that you've been diagnosed with cancer, and my mother had just been buried on, a, on a, the end of a 14-year battle with ovarian cancer one month prior to my diagnosis. Well, that's a wake-up call. And uh, so this friend asked me, well, gee, what, what did you say to the doctor? What did, you, what did you think? What did you say to God? Why me? I said, you know, I I pondered that question for a moment, and then the more I thought about it, I thought, you know, an even more valid question, instead of shaking my fist towards heaven and saying, why me, God, was, well, why not me? If Scripture says to us that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, why not me? Do we have a sense in, in our life that somebody else is deserving of the bad stuff and we're only deserving of the good stuff? Or conversely so, those that get stuck in that permanent pity party that says, gee, there must be something really wrong about me, something really defective about me, in that I've got all of these terrible things visited upon me, and so therefore they kind of remain stuck in that mode and they, they kind of wear their pain as a badge of honor and never get a chance to dig down deep into what's going on or what God wants us to learn from that experience or, uh, or uh, just as importantly, robs us of the ability to experience the totality of God's grace in that pain, in that brokenness. Yes. Oh, Craig, it's just convicting for me to hear you even say that, because that is a, a big load to carry, you know, but what a beautiful perspective. And, and truly, that's something that happens to us when we lament to God, when we do cry out to Him, and we do ask why He shifts our perspective. He does something that's called a new song in the Psalms. And when, when we are in a time of lament or a time of despair and we bring that to God, it says that He gives us a new song and a hymn of praise. And it's a new song that we could not have previously sung if we didn't go through the despair, if we didn't go through the lament. So when we suck it up and when we fake fine, we're missing out on these mysteries of God and this ability to praise Him and 
thank him for his sovereignty and his goodness, even in the midst of cancer. And so it sounds like what you did is taking your lament and God turned it into praise. And that's exactly what this book about is about. It's not staying in your lament forever. <laughs> it's not even celebrating the lament. It's saying there's a purpose for my pain. God is not going to waste it. And it's my story, but it's his glory. And it's asking God, please give me a new song again. Help me to sing. Remind me of your faithfulness because I believe I will see your goodness in the land of the living. And it's not giving up hope until we do. A brief pause. We're going to come back to more of our dialogue today. We're visiting with Esther Fleece. The book is called No More Faking Fine. Love that title. Newly published, by the way, by our friends at Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Esther's website at estherfleece.com. We'll take a brief time out and back to more of our conversation right after an update on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Put on a happy face, and we do a lot of that. At the end of the day, though, uh, that faking fine ends up being something that I think we all pay a great penalty for. And that isn't to say that every time you have a moment of difficulty in your life, you ought to write a book about it and, uh, and get out and tell everybody about, oh, let me tell you about the latest tragedy. No, but sadly, a lot of people hide behind the faking of fine or the putting on of the happy face, and as a result, never get a chance to experience God's grace in brokenness. We not only try to hide our pain from others, but we ultimately try to hide our pain from God, and that becomes a huge barrier to our relationship with others and ultimately with Him. The new book today by Esther Fleece, No More Faking Fine. And Esther, give us some perspective for the benefit of listeners. Um, How is it that you essentially, by reading the book, seem like you spent your your early formative years growing up in family court. What happened? You know, my um, biological parents went through a really uh, rough divorce. My father suffered from a severe mental illness, and he was uh, physically, you know, hurting my mother. And so there's a lot of hardship just growing up in a home like that, but nobody ever really processed things with me, and I was just in and out of court as a witness um, because my father wanted to see me. Um, just It was very... Um, an unsteady past and traumatic, and um, eventually he ended up leaving the family, spent time in and out of jail, and my, my mother ended up leaving as well when I hit the age of 13. I think she had just been so hurt, uh, so abused, and just she didn't have much to give. And so I really found myself orphaned around the age of 13, didn't go into the foster care system, surprisingly enough. At the time, there was just wonderful families in my community and the public school I went to, as well as uh, the church I was involved in. And these families said, she can stay with us. And um, I lived, really, Psalm 68, which says, God places the lonely in families. And uh, these families stepped up and really uh, reparented me and showed me the love of God. And through their love, I was able to believe that God was uh, not only a good father, but had um, wonderful characteristics like a good mother, like his compassion and nurturing um, nature. So, um, yeah, I, I am a former orphan, I like to say, um, that's now no longer sucking it up. I, I do go into details of, of my past in the book, um, but trying to not make that the, the focus, trying to help the reader identify their own pain points and maybe the things that they've stuffed for 20 or 30 years themselves. And, of course, sometimes in that suffering, we kind of get stuck. Um, That pain, ironically, while it's not welcome, um, is familiar. And because it's familiar, sometimes it feels more 
comfortable. Um, talk to us about how you moved from faking fine to learning the power of a biblical concept that's not spoken much of, that's not preached about much, but but in fact can be a very effective tool in, in breaking the cycle, and that is learning what it means to lament. Tell me about that. Oh, well, I, I'm glad you asked the question, and I know some of your listeners are going to be uncomfortable with the answer because, you know, I, I was studying this language of lament, and I was learning how to pray was reading the Psalms, and I was discovering that not only was it a great prayer manual, but that the Psalms would have been sung. And so we could even sing our grief and sing our questions to God. And so just as God was teaching me this new language, and this is over the course of years, I, I couldn't get away from the fact that there was also communal lament in Scripture, that um, there is a significant portion of our healing that is done in the context of community. Uh, God himself is a relational God, and he desires for us to not live in isolation, but in community. So it was really when I started opening up um, these laments with safe community. Now, of course, it's not, I'm not saying I tweeted everything. I just went to trusted Christians and uh, in a safe context to let them know what I was struggling with and what I was afraid of and where I felt God had let me down that they were able to help me and help me to see where I had some false beliefs. You know, when the courtroom judge told me to suck it up, I actually made a vow, Craig. I said, I'm never going to write again because my words were used against me as a 10-year-old girl in court. And so wouldn't it be of God that as he does this healing process in me, he calls me to write a book and to help other people get unstuck from the false vows that they're living in as well. So there are two types of laments in Scripture. There's individual laments and there's community laments. And I think both are critical for us to have a healthy spirituality. We certainly, um, as we go through the book of Psalms, see so many cases where David uh, expresses his sense of lament. And there can be a certain healing to this that that people perhaps um, miss. They don't, and, and, and maybe just a, a matter of definition here. When we talk about what lamenting is, this is not, gee, I lament the fact that uh, I misdated dating the, the prettiest girl at the prom in high school. Uh, it, it's something deeper than that. And it also, I think, expresses not just a feeling, but an acknowledgement of a sense of, of loss where for many of us that have gone through difficult experiences in life, and I've, I, as a kid, had my uh, brush with family court as well, uh, nothing severely as, as what you face, but I, I had a point in my life when I had to finally kind of um, pull up my bootstraps and look seriously in the mirror and say, you know what, I got robbed of a lot of what should have been a normative childhood because of difficulties between my parents, no fault of my own. And hey, just like any time you, you, you experience loss, part of the healing process is going through grief. And for me, I had short-circuited that. I moved right past the grief and tried to kind of bury that and did so for many, many years. And I think it was after I finally came to terms with the fact that there was a loss that I needed to acknowledge and grieve over that I was able to find a sense of, of personal victory, and I think be able to get into a better place in my relationship with God. Was that largely the same experience that you had? And, and give us a sense for the benefit of listeners, when we talk about lamenting, what exactly do you mean by that? You know, lament is a, and it's an expression of grief, like you said. It's a deep cry that's in your heart. It's almost the prayers that you don't want to pray out loud in church. Mm. <laughs> it's almost a thing going on that you don't want others to know, like, your, your agony or your disappointment or your sadness. And it's uh, bringing it to God. A lament is an expression of that grief, but 
in this book, I'm saying it's an, it's an expression of grief that God meets you in. Because I just believe that all throughout Scripture, again, God is deeply attracted to us in our brokenness. He does not turn away or silence a lamenting prayer. So a lament is that expression of grief that God meets you in. And I, I appreciate your testimony. Mine is so similar. And I used to think, gosh, retraining my mind means never thinking again of the abuse I experienced. I thought, you know, okay, God, give me a new mind and a clean heart. And I just thought that the blood of Christ should have given me amnesia or something. <laughs> but um, really, there was healing that took place when I was able to lament to God, and then God met me in that brokenness. And it wasn't anything that somebody could have put a Band-Aid on. It was a, a deep form of a relational intimacy that I had with God. For example, when I lamented the loss of my biological parents, and this is over the course of years, just really struggling with this. It was when God led me to the verse in Psalm 68 that says, He places the lonely in families. And that became my new song. I was able to not give thanks for what I went through, but I was able to have a new song. Thank you, God, that you provided for me by giving me good families when mine was taken. But we cannot fully forgive unless we first lament. And I don't think we can be fully healed unless we deal with our grief as well. Let's pause. We're going to come back to more of our conversation, some closing remarks with Esther Fleece. The new book is called No More Faking Fine, again, newly published by Zondervan. You can get it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, or order it directly through Esther's website, EstherFleece.com. We'll take a brief time out. Back with more right after an update on traffic. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 